KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, remember how the state of Florida banned the African-American studies curriculum proposed by the college board on the grounds that it might cause guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress in students? Now, teachers, scholars, and activists have been fighting back. Historian Robin D.G. Kelly will explain. Also, 20% of likely Democratic voters recently told pollsters they support Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his campaign for the presidency. Joan Walsh will tell the story of her history with Kennedy and his anti-vax crusade later in the hour. But first, Trump heads for trial on his biggest crimes. You thought maybe possession of classified documents wasn't the worst thing he did? Finally, he's being charged with the big one, attempting to seize power through fraud and force. For that story, we turn to Harold Meyerson, of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So what do we know about this story? The, the new charges have not been filed yet. No, uh, it is apparently customary, at least for a special counsel, to uh, notify those people who may be the target of uh, the special counsel's investigations that they are indeed such targets. And on Tuesday, Donald Trump said that he had received such a letter from special counsel Jack Smith, who is uh, investigating uh, all kinds of things related to the January 6, 2021 uh, attempted insurrection. And uh, do you think now Trump will campaign for the presidency on policy issues, on the future of the country, you know, build the wall in support for Ukraine, indict Dr. Fauci? Well, he wasn't doing quite that much before. Uh, he, he has basically been sort of uh, using his stump speech to trot out a litany of uh, grievances that he himself is suffering. There was always a kind of l'état-c'est-moi yes. uh, aspect to Trump, going back at least to his acceptance speech at the 2016 Republican convention when he said, I alone uh, can fix it. And now, now it's, uh, we all need uh, to fix me, is the uh, <laughs> going to be increasingly the theme on which Trump runs, and assuming he wins the Republican nomination, I don't think that's a, a notably compelling theme to take into a general election context. Not notably compelling. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little. <laughs> well, look, you know, Trump's going to say he, he actually won the 2020 contest, you know, and, and so in, in, a, in a really bizarre kind of way, his 2024 campaign is going to be based on insisting he won in 2020. And uh, what we do know, in particular from the uh, midterm elections of last year, that almost all the election deniers, like uh, uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, Carrie Lake, all of them went down to defeat. This didn't seem to be really something that uh, a majority of the voting public wanted to uh, embrace or give power to the people who seemed like they wanted to relitigate the what is legitimately unrelitigatable outcome of the 2020 election. The other Republican candidates, of course, have now had to take a stand on whether to support uh, 
Trump's claims that he's being persecuted by a politicized uh, Justice Department, Ron DeSantis defended Trump against uh, charges around January 6th, saying the coming indictment was, quote, an attempt to criminalize politics and try to criminalize differences, close quote. I wonder if you think the attack on the Capitol on January 6th was a case of politics about our differences. Yeah, well, again, that that shows you the kind of box that Republican candidates have encased themselves in, uh, because on the one hand, they are running against Trump, but on the other hand, they cannot uh, afford to offend the base of the Republican Party, which is uh, Trumpian to the nth degree. And so, you know, they end up not, what DeSantis did was he didn't quite defend January 6th as such. He just said the Justice Department shouldn't do this and they're mischaracterizing it, but I'm not going to describe it any further. So there you are. Uh, And, you know, this this is a box which all the Republican candidates who aren't really going after Trump, as let's say Chris Christie is, are, you know, kind of imprisoned in, and then they end up sounding uh, pretty ridiculous. Then we have Mike Pence, of course. He was directly targeted on January 6th. You may recall the mob Trump summoned to attack the Capitol, chanted, hang Mike Pence, while he hid in the basement. So you might think he would find uh, this to be not acceptable. But even Pence declined to suggest that Trump should be prosecuted. He said, quote, I believe that history will hold him to account for his actions that day. Uh, This was a statement Tuesday. But as for the indictment, he said, quote, I hope it doesn't come to that. I'm not convinced that the president acting on bad advice from a group of crank lawyers is actually a criminal. Close quote, Mike Pence. Your comment. Well, if if the crankhood were limited only to advisors, uh, Pence might have a case there. But there is such ample evidence of Trump's own whacked out crankiness and, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that he went ahead. I gather one of the things that Jack Smith, the special counsel, has been doing is asking people who were around Trump if they ever heard him say he actually knew he lost. For example, Jared Kushner, he asked. Yes, he asked Jared Kushner that, you know, so tell us about your father-in-law. That suggests he's building a case showing that Trump knew damn well that he had lost, but he, you know, rather than actually acknowledge it, he was willing to overthrow the government, basically. My favorite of the possible charges described in the news reports yesterday and today are the mail fraud and wire fraud uh, potential charges, Trump defrauding not the United States, but his own supporters. Because after the election, he appealed to donors uh, to help fight the election results in court and contribute to a defense fund. He sent out his like 25 emails a day asking them to contribute to his defense fund, but no such fund existed. And he used the money for other purposes, including spending more than $200,000 at Trump hotel properties. I think that's fraud. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's an, a weird codependency thing here. I mean, how much abuse do Trump supporters, uh, you know, accept by simply denying that it's abuse? Uh, you know, so 
Uh, I, yeah, I think there are multiple grounds on which this guy could be uh, legitimately convicted. I've been wondering why the prosecutor in Georgia hasn't filed charges against Trump. This is where they have him on tape telling the Secretary of, St of State Brad Raffensperger, a name we never knew before and now we will know forever, that Trump needed to, quote, find 11,780 votes so he could be declared the winner of the election in Georgia. It's an open and shut case in, in terms of the evidence. They have him on tape. But the Fulton County prosecutor still hasn't charged him, and it's almost two and a half years. But today I found the explanation in the New York Times, quote, former prosecutors have predicted DOJ would want to go first before Georgia to avoid damaging discrepancies in testimony that could arise in competing cases covering similar events, close quote. So I wonder if you agreed that it would be better if Trump were put on trial in Washington for the January 6th crimes before he went on trial in Georgia for criminal vote fraud solicitation? I'm not sure I really have what could pass as an informed opinion uh, on that. You know, I mean, a jury in Washington would probably be less Trumpian than a jury in, in Georgia, although in Fulton County, which is where the DA would bring charges, uh, that would be a not notably Trumpian jury. It's also the case that if uh, Trump is brought to trial relatively quickly, he's not going to be, uh, the case won't be dismissed by a Democratic administration. Whereas in Georgia, there is a Republican governor who was hung, you know, with Raffensperger, very tough on the issue of, yeah, the vote count was accurate in Georgia. Uh, but uh, there is always a possibility that Trump could be convicted in Georgia and then immediately pardoned by Republican Governor Brian Kemp. So, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of variables here floating around. And also the question is whether Jack Smith would have a stronger case, better prosecution uh, than, than Fulton County would. We think, well, federal prosecutors are usually pretty good. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, the, as you said, uh, there is the tape recording of, of Trump suggesting Raffensperger find just, you know, 11,000 some odd votes that would give him the majority, which certainly seems to me like an open and shut, relatively simple case. It has been dragged out uh, for two and a half years, and, you know, it started dragging well before uh, anyone was appointing a special prosecutor to yeah. investigate January 6th. So, you know, there's always been a kind of a what's wrong with this picture, uh, a thing buzzing around in, in, in any number of heads, including mine, about, okay, he's indicted for some financial stuff in Manhattan and for possession of documents in Mar-a-Lago, uh, but not for a smoking gun uh, issue in Atlanta and not for trying to uh, seize the presidency through fraud and through force. So, you know, now at least the, the really significant crimes like, you know, insurrection uh, are, are finally uh, being brought into, uh, you know, the legal system. So no longer can we say what's wrong with this picture. It's, it's not the smaller stuff. It's the real mortally serious stuff for the future of the United States democracy. In conclusion, 
charging Trump with crimes for the January 6th insurrection guarantees that the 2024 election will be more of a referendum on Trump than a referendum on Biden. Is that a good thing? Well, from the point of view of uh, Democrats who want Biden to win, or just Americans who want Biden to win, it sure is. Uh, you know, Biden's polling uh, still is, is, is pretty low. Uh, he to, still seems to get no credit for the revival of an economy and what is now uh, is a greatly uh, reduced level of, uh, of inflation. But, you know, uh, if Trump is the issue and not Biden, Biden wins. So, of course, the other big story, especially in L.A. uh, this week, is about the Hollywood strikes. SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, published on tweet a chart showing the demands by the unions in negotiation and the counters from the studios. Let me just give the top two items on there. Minimum wage increase sought by by the actors union. 11% 11% general wage increase in year one, 4% in year two, 4% in year three, kind of a little less than most workers are getting these days in their strikes. Uh, the studios countered 5% in year one, 4% in year two, 3% in year three. Second item, new media revenue sharing. The casts should share in the revenue generated when their performances are exhibited on streaming platforms. That is the actor's union proposal. The studio counter rejected, period. I think that kind of sums up where we stand in this strike right now. Right. And, you know, that I think is the real stumbling block, although the wage issue is real, too. I I should add, by the way, that United Airline pilots just got a over over the life of a four year contract, a 440 percent raise. And, you know, when you talk about highly skilled professionals, I think you were talking about major airline pilots and major movie and TV actors. So going to come on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no, but, but that that second issue is really is really the key. Uh, you know, actors have long since received residuals when their um, performances have been part of movies and TV uh, shows that have been aired and re-aired. And suddenly, with the advent of a new mode of distribution, streaming, the studios say, but we're not going to do it here, um, you know, which is just profoundly contradictory, unfair, and, uh, you know, uh, I think any group of, uh, of of workers facing, you know, suddenly the rise of a new mode of money-making for the employer in which the employer suddenly says, and you ain't going to get any of it, would, would do just what the actors are doing. And that's what happened in the last two strikes. The 1960 strike was about the new medium of television and actors demanded that they be paid when their movies were shown on television. Uh, the 1980 strike uh, was about the invention of, of video, the sales of video cassettes. Now we're in the next stage, streaming. And there's always a strike ab- about how the studios want to keep all the money and the people who do the work think they should get some of it. Yeah, no, this is an established tradition. Both the actors and the writers have been on strike multiple times. And every time the structure of the industry changes, we see this pattern. The industry kind of 
says, well, what's new and what's changed, that, that should belong to us and the people who provide the work uh, that the, the studios use say, well, you know, uh, we, we need a share of this as well. And so, you know, we're back to the future. We're born back ceaselessly into the past. <laughs> choose your, choose your uh, you know, uh, whatever phrase you want to use. Um, here we are again. Uh, last week here, we talked about the report in Deadline, quoting an unnamed studio exec saying, their end game was the writers losing their houses and being evicted from their apartments pretty much the same day that bob Iger of disney said the unions were being quote unrealistic and these two items caused a storm of outrage as people noted that that Iger is paid 57 million dollars a year just in salary um, the news now is that barry diller a former hollywood studio chief suggested that studio executives take a 25 percent pay cut to bring a quick end to the strikes and help prevent what he called the collapse of the entire industry you talked last week about the need for a new lou wasserman who would step onto the scene and solve the the crisis here uh is barry diller capable of doing that uh, I don't know. Barry Diller has been around forever. Uh, uh, case in point, he is generally regarded as the person who mentored Michael Eisner, who headed Disney decades ago. So I don't know how old Barry Diller is. Uh, he is certainly a uh, re somewhat respected senior uh, in the constellation of former studio moguls. And uh, I, I, I think he probably senses this has more serious ramifications for the future of the industry than the current crop of studio executives do. So I don't know if there's a Barry Diller magical solution here, but I think he's giving voice to uh, what people who really understand how Hollywood works are feeling, that the studios are on the verge of breaking how Hollywood works. And the results could be really, uh, really bad from any perspective. Actor Mark Ruffalo <clears throat> offered his own suggestion about how to resolve the crisis. He suggested that uh, workers seize the means of production by getting back into the indie business, independent productions outside the existing studios and filmmakers. You think, uh, you think that's a good idea? Uh, I do, although, you know, that requires a hell of a lot of work uh, and a hell of a lot of capital, more capital probably than almost any actors, writers and directors, with the possible exception of, say, Steven Spielberg, uh, actually have. So uh, it, it's, it, it's a good idea, but uh, as the adage goes, it takes money to make money and they would have to be, you know, significant investments to make that work. The Hollywood uh, Reporter published an, an analysis that said the annual cost of the SAG and WG contracts that have uh, that are being sought may be four hundred fifty million dollars a year. That's from Moody's, uh, and and uh, we note that David Zaslav, a single Hollywood studio exec, got $498 million in compensation, more than the total cost of everything the actors and writers are seeking. Ari Emanuel, 346 million. Reed Hastings, 209 million. 
Bob Iger, $195 million over the last couple of years. So it uh, seems like there's a good argument here that what the, uh, what the actors and writers are asking for is not going to break the studios. Yeah, and, you know, particularly the antipathy that the studios have shown to the writers. Yeah. I mean, if the writer, there are only 11,000 members of the, uh, of, of the Writers Guild. I, I almost don't think this is about money at all from the studio's viewpoint. It's about the, you know... Uh, they just don't really like the idea of unionized writers, which explains that quotes that were in that deadline uh, article. Um, and and so, you know, in, in a sense, this is simply studio mogul uh, antipathy and hubris and kind of standing in for the CEO class generally in the United <laughs> States. Yes. Which the idea of workers having real input. Uh, into uh, into their respective companies. I found a tweet from uh, Zach Bornstein <clears throat> yesterday, struggling to figure out why the WGA SAG strikes are getting negative news coverage on CNN, owned by Warner Brothers, MSNBC, owned by Universal, ABC News, owned by Disney, CBS News, owned by Paramount, and Fox News, owned by Hitler. <laughs> a great tweet what can i say <laughs> I, I i never heard of zach bernstein i looked him up he describes himself as an emmy losing writer and comedian <laughs> so there you go well he should be certainly an emmy winning comedian after that after that tweet so finally one last news item on a different subject marjorie taylor green at the right-wing turning points action conference in florida last week uh, she gave a speech comparing Biden's Build Back Better plan with LBJ's Great Society and with the New Deal. She said they all invested in education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, gave us Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and welfare, uh, and big labor and labor unions. And she said these were all big socialist programs. She considered this to be proof that we should abandon them. Uh, I uh, I saw that Biden retweeted this as part of his uh, campaign. Yeah, well, in this case, I think Biden's political sensibilities are a little sharper than Marjorie Taylor Greene's in terms of what the American public actually wants and needs. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Remember how the state of Florida banned the African-American studies curriculum proposed by the college board on the grounds that it might cause guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress in students? Remember how the college board bowed to political pressure and abandoned much of that proposed course? Now, teachers, scholars, and activists have been fighting back, and the college board has announced plans to revise that curriculum yet again. For that story, we turn to Robin D.G. Kelly. He's Gary B. Nash Professor of U.S. History at UCLA and the author of many books, 
including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. He's written for the New York Times, the Boston Review, and The Nation. And his new article, The Long War on Black Studies, appears in the New York Review. And his new book, co-edited by Colin Kampernick and Kianga Yamada Taylor, is Our History Has Always Been Contraband in Defense of Black Studies. One more thing, <laughs> his work has been singled out for attack by the state of Florida. Robin Kelly, welcome back. It's always great to be with you, John. Well, let's start with feeling guilt and anguish over the history of slavery. I guess Florida officials want students to feel good about the American past, including <laughs> slavery. That's not easy for black students, but somehow Florida seems more concerned about the feelings of, well, shall we say, other students. Exactly. Why would anyone, irrespective of your generation, your race, your ethnicity, actually want to be proud about, you know, the legacy of slavery? And obviously, these Republicans are running around um, trying to distance themselves from the history of slavery. Josh Hawley put out that tweet a couple of days ago where he said, America is a Christian nation. America is where slavery went to die. <laughs> you know, and of course, we, so the fact that they're making the same argument that says we don't want to discuss racism, slavery, anything that would cause discomfort, they're making the same argument that America is the uh, leading nation in terms of abolition. So it's a, a whole bunch of contradictions. And one other thing, you know, you and I, we've been teaching uh, so-called white students for 40 years, Right. And I have yet to actually have a student in my class saying, you know what, this stuff about slavery is making me embarrassed and I feel hurt and pain. In fact, they want to know more because they actually can disassociate themselves from it. And they may be recipients of generational wealth, but that's a different question altogether. Um, in fact, the more they know, like James Baldwin said, you know, you, you can't know uh, your history unless you know mine. And that's that's the truth. That Florida law, Ron DeSantis named it the Stop Woke Act, prohibits teachers from teaching that anyone is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive solely by virtue of his or her race or sex, close quote. Does anybody believe that some races are inherently inferior and that one race is superior? Of course. <laughs> We call it white supremacy. <laughs> we call it racism. I mean, that's the, that's the amazing thing. It's like Freud would have a trip thinking about the way in which this language is, is, is written because it's kind of a confession of everything uh, that racism as an ideology does and projected onto anti-racist scholarship. And let me include here, does anybody believe that gender differences are based on inherent characteristics? Oh, well, <laughs> we all know, based on, the, on Christian nationalism, that, you know, God made man and woman. I mean, this is exactly the kind of mythology that has caused what I would argue are genocidal policies in terms of the attack on trans youth, you know, denying them gender-affirming care, I mean, making this legal. I mean, denying people's ex right to exist, you know. So unfortunately, this is this is an old struggle. It's a very old 
argument and it's quite dangerous. And again, it is a projection of the kind of right-wing ideology onto anti-racism. And then there's this issue of responsibility. Uh, the Stop Woke Act bans teaching that some people today, quote, bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race. As you already mentioned, that's a reference to teaching about reparations exactly. uh, for slavery. Uh, what do you have to say about the issue of responsibility? People who argue for reparations do not claim that all present day white people are responsible for slavery and Jim Crow. Rather, the argument is that you know reparations acknowledges that enslavement, land theft, wage theft, housing discrimination, all these things resulted in extracting wealth from some while directly accruing generational wealth to others. So it's a question of generational wealth. If we dig deeper, we're going to find, and I've made this case uh, 20 years ago, that there are a lot of white people, white working class people who deserve reparations. I mean, you think about you know, how much health and physical damage to coal miners, for example, and the price that they had to pay in their lives. So it's really a way of understanding both generational wealth, but also how capitalism works. All of this takes the form of a debate about the College Board Advanced Placement Curriculum in African-American Studies. Uh, what is the College Board Advanced Placement Curriculum? And maybe we should start with, what is the College Board? <laughs> Well, the College Board has a monopoly on both uh, advanced placement courses, on SAT uh, exams, and, you know, all these exams, you know, college preparation exams, co college entrance exams, um, they have a monopoly and they make money off of them. So just AP courses alone for Florida, I think they made some like $35 million on, you know, because each, each school had to pay for the students to take the AP exam. Um, and so there's that. The other thing is that advanced placement classes, you know, which I think are kind of problematic, but I understand them. They do a couple things. One, it allows you to opt out of the course at the university, whether it's a you know intro to history course or you know English. Um, but the other thing is, and the, the slightly positive thing, although when you look at it in the larger picture, it's not that positive, is that students who may have to pay for credits individually might be able to opt out of those courses and save money. But that's not how universities work. You don't like pay less tuition because you have an AP. <laughs> you pay the same amount. Okay. And, and that's one of the big mythologies, you know. But it's a money-making machine. And the AP curriculum is recommended to high schools for, I guess it's seniors who want to do as high school work what is really introductory college work. Right. So... This is for the, you know, the ambitious and the intellectual elite. And one of our complaints uh, here in California is that a lot of high schools do not offer AP courses or some AP right. courses. And so those students are disadvantaged in their college applications. Absolutely. And you, you have to, in some schools, you have to test into AP courses. You can't just get in because you want to. Um, but more than that, we've had so many students who've taken AP courses who are not prepared these are still high school level courses. I mean, when you break it down, yeah. it may be a little bit additional reading, but we're doing something different at the university. Uh, and you cannot standardize history teaching 
because it's such a dynamic process. So I think the whole thing to me should be just abandoned, but that's just me. I just want to emphasize here, this isn't just part of the DeSantis presidential campaign. More than a dozen other states have followed the example of Florida in uh, criticizing, re refusing uh, school to give permission to schools to use mm -hmm. the, this curriculum. And it went all the way to the Trump White House. Trump issued an executive order in September 2020. He said his purpose was to root out ideologies that label entire groups of Americans as inherently racist. And Trump suggested banning the keywords white privilege, systematic racism, intersectionality, and unconscious bias. This applied to corporate training in, right. in diversity as well as universities and colleges. Trump was asked about his executive order during the first pre presidential debate. He said, quote, they were teaching people that our country is a horrible place, a racist place. They were teaching people to hate our country, and I'm not going to allow that to happen. Now, I see that Trump's executive order was rescinded on January 20th, 2023. What happened on January 20th, 2023? <laughs> you have the Biden administration now in power. That's the first day. All that language, though, Trump is not that smart. Let's admit <laughs> okay. it. Uh, that language came from Chris Rufo. Chris Rufo uh, works for the Manhattan Institute. He's a, he's a national figure who, on the right uh, who, is, who basically took it upon himself to uh, hijack critical race theory as a new communism. There's, there's something that he says, which is so outrageous. He goes on Twitter in 2021 and says that his plan is to rebrand CRT, to make it toxic, those are his words, uh, to turn it toxic. Um, and then as uh, we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and we'll recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. It was a ploy. He admitted it and it's working. And so the language that was written in the 1776 commission, that's Chris Rufo's language. This is Trump's 1776 right. commission. Exactly, exactly. That's, and that, that 1776 commission was the project that came out of that executive order. The Florida attack on African-American studies had its new aspects, but the effort to prevent people from learning about the history of slavery and the black freedom struggle is not. Uh, and that's really the subject of your piece in the New York Review. How far back in American history would you say the effort to prevent people from learning about slavery goes? <laughs> well, let's go back to uh, the effort to keep enslaved people from learning to read and write. That's that's sort of a beginning. The, th the fact that that was a threat suggests that there's something incendiary about knowledge, knowledge that would challenge the status quo. And, you know, in the book called Our History Has Always Been Contraband, I talk about David Walker's appeal, which was published in 1829. It's, it, it excoriated slavery. It criticized American hypocrisy for being a land of liberty, but still holding slaves. Um, and that that pamphlet was banned. And if you were caught, if you've caught printing it, let alone owning it, 
uh, you can get to death penalty, basically. You could be hanged, jailed. Uh, and that, to me, is the highest form of contraband. You know, and it's not an accident that almost all the anti-literacy statutes that were passed in the South, all, they, there's a flood of them between 1829 and 1831 after Nat Turner's rebellion. We know that during the Jim Crow era, there was you know, mandatory school segregation in the South. What kind of Black history was taught in Black schools in the Jim Crow era? Jarvis Gibbons wrote this great book, which talks about that. This was fugitive history, fugitive uh, knowledge, sometimes in you know, one-room schoolhouses, uh, sometimes with, over, with principals or superintendents of schools overseeing some of this work, and they'd have to sneak at night. So you'd have teaching of kind of indirectly of Black history inside these schools, all Black schools, but you'd also have the tradition of midnight schools. That is to say, like during Reconstruction and afterward, like during slavery, you had schools in the woods, you know, schools in the fields after midnight where they would talk and discuss and learn how to read, write, um, adults as well as children. You know, so it was a very dangerous thing, this reading, writing. And though we always think about it in terms of the Bible, there's a lot of other forms of knowledge that people were seeking. So the underlying question in all of this is, who's afraid of Black studies? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I give a long list. <laughs> Certainly, um, anyone who is afraid of dealing with the, the crimes that have built the country, and there's a litany of crimes, crimes of dispossession of Native lands, the crime of slavery itself, um, the fact that there's never been any kind of repair or reparation for that, uh, let alone um, the other kinds of threatening crimes. And that is the possibility of multiracial democracy. That's a, considered a crime. The fact that uh, labor organizers building solidarity with white, Black, Latinx, Asian workers, they get beat down through state houses and legislatures that pass anti-union laws, right-to-work laws, and this sort of thing. And then, of course, when race doesn't work, they use the C-word, communism. Yeah. You know? So these things are really, I mean, Black history, if we do it right, it's global, knows no boundaries, and it is a uh, demand for freedom for all. So where do we stand right now on this latest revision of that college board curriculum in African-American studies? No one knows because, it, you know, we're still waiting for the changes. There's been an announcement that there will be changes to the curriculum. As far as I know, um, it hasn't been uh, completed. Uh, I do know that um, the college board is walking a very fine line between trying to make sure that they keep their their constituency in, in Florida and Texas and Iowa uh, and make sure that they can you know, serve the entire country. And finally, tell us about your new book, Our History Has Always Been Contraband. So this is a, a joint effort between uh, Colin Kaepernick's publishing company and Haymarket Books. And it was something that we pulled together, especially Colin was the force behind it. And he uh, brought myself and Kanga Yamada-Taylor to bring this to fruition, to edit this book, which consists of some original essays, some of the band material 
from the AP curriculum, as well as some key documents that we think are important uh, for Black studies. It's not comprehensive, but it is uh, meant to be a kind of a primer. And what's important here, the most important thing, is that it's being given away for free. Wow. I mean, thousands of copies are going to Florida just to give to students. Um, you can get a free, you can get a free um, ebook. You know, they just give, we're just giving away. Uh, so that's really important as a way to flood and challenge the the status quo on this question of Black history. And what was it like to work with your co-editor Colin Kaepernick? The dude is brilliant. I mean, <laughs> if he if he never if he never goes back and plays football. He, he is a young scholar, you know, and very deeply committed. Um, and so I really appreciated the work that he did. And by the way, he does his work. And we all work together. We all kind of came to consensus. I spent time with him at the book launch at, in Seattle, the town hall. We had a wonderful conversation um, about what this book is going to do and what comes next. What does come next? Well, as he put it, there's a three-step three-step plan. Knowledge, number one. Strategy, number two. And action. We can't just talk about it and write about it. We need to fight for control of our schools, fight for control of our state houses, and stop this, you know, right-wing, white Christian nationalist war on truth and knowledge and, and free thought. Robin Kelly. His article, The Long War on Black Studies, appears in the New York Review. Robin, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking <laughs> thanks, with us John. today. Appreciate it. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. 20% of likely Democratic voters tell pollsters they support Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his primary challenge to Joe Biden. Kennedy, of course, is best known as an anti-vax conspiracy theorist, and Joan Walsh has written a magnificent piece for the nation about her history with Kennedy and his crusade. She's national affairs correspondent for the magazine. She's been a commentator on MSNBC and CNN. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. And she served as editor-in-chief of Salon for six years. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Not a fun thing to rehash, but... <sighs> Well, you were there at the beginning when Kennedy first made a splash as an anti-vax figure in 2005. That's when Salon and Rolling Stone jointly published an article under his byline headlined Deadly Immunity. You were the editor of Salon at that point. The article asserted a link between a purported increase in autism and the presence in vaccines of something called thimerosal, a compound used as a preservative. The fact is there has never been any scientifically valid evidence for this link. That's why Salon ended up publishing five corrections to Kennedy's article and finally removed it from its website in 2011. Now those events are back in the news because Kennedy has declared recently that Salon caved 
to pressure from government regulators and big pharma. And as I said, you were the editor of Salon. How does that piece, Deadly Immunity, published 18 years ago, look to you today, now that Kennedy is talking about it again? It was the worst mistake of my career to publish that piece. Uh, I knew it had some flaws. I didn't know how how terrible they were. Uh, it was a complicated partnership with Rolling Stone where I did the line editing and they did the fact checking and supposedly they had a great fact checking department. I don't want to you know, throw stones. They had stuff going on. We had stuff going on. Everybody was overworked. I didn't have major misgivings. I just thought he was just trying to make it a conspiracy where it wasn't necessarily, and then not acknowledge that they did take thimerosal out of, of childhood vaccines out of an abundance of caution, the CDC said. But rates, that was in 2000, and rates were continuing to rise to where they're, you know, they're, they're skyrocketing. And you know, there are a lot of people who don't like us to talk about autism as some sort of disability. Uh, anyway, it, it really, by 2005, you could all already see, well, if, if this preservative really causes autism, well, autism rates should be going down now that they took it out. But they did not, and they continued to skyrocket. And you worked pretty closely with Kennedy on, on the original piece. What was that like? Sometimes it was fun. It was all over the phone. I'm, I don't know if I ever met him. He's very funny. He's got a sense of humor. I'm sure I was a little bit dazzled by the Kennedy magic, which comes across more fully in person. Um, he has this widely discussed voice problems. I don't think it's hard for him anymore, but it's, he, he has a very gravelly voice. We cut a 20,000 word manuscript down to like 3,500. So there was lots on the cutting room floor. He didn't agree with all those changes. That's fine. And then our phones started ringing and our email started blowing up with people complaining about the story, making specific requests for correction. And then let me ask about that, because you published this series of five corrections. But then several years later, you decided to withdraw the piece entirely. What led you to take the final step? I think a, a really major factor, I have to say, was Seth Mnookin's book, The Panic Virus, which had a whole chapter on RFK and touched on Salon and the, the real mistakes, the really, I think, willful seeming distortions in the piece. And at that point, you know, you've you've cut, you've pasted, you've amended, you've you might as well, you know, just put up a black, you know, redacted boxes over the entire article. You, you get to a point where, you know, you can't you, you you trust your most of the spellings of names, but not much else. So I felt for a while that I always like to side with transparency. And so the thing to do is append a really long correction to the top. I just thought this piece had <laughs> it had lived through so many generations of errors that it, it should come down. Uh, and, you know, several of us talked about it. As it turns out, David Talbot, who had stepped down as editor in chief, I had just taken over for him a few only a few months earlier. He really opposed taking it down. And, and we'll still say that, that he knows we didn't cave to Big Pharma, but he thinks we caved to something. Kennedy says, you caved to pressure. In your piece, you say there was a lot of pressure on you, but from whom? 
from scientists and advocates who knew the truth, who'd been de- debunking this for a long time. It it was still pretty early in the, the annals of anti-vax activism, but it wasn't that early. And there was a cottage industry of people I would describe as kind of like cranks who were pushing these misinterpreted scientific findings and finding things that weren't there. And so that clamor became very hard to to tune out. We, we didn't want to tune it out. Well, I mean, I guess I, I guess I would have liked to if the story was correct. So it was just people I respected who knew about science were like, no, that's a terrible piece. I mean, people who were close to me were like, sorry, but that was terrible. Farhad Manju, who worked with you at Salon on some of these issues, has a strong piece at the New York Times this week about what it's like to debate Kennedy on the issues and how hard it is to debate him, because he starts with a few true statements. Some people do have bad reactions to vaccines. Big Pharma has done really terrible things. And then he starts making these wilder and more ridiculous arguments. And when you start correcting his errors and misstatements by discussing the scientific evidence, he says you're nitpicking. And then he says you're making Republican talking points. And then he says you're wrong. He is not an anti-vaxxer. He's merely a vaccine safety advocate. He says all he wants to do is make sure that vaccines are subject to the same kind of safety testing that other drugs are subject to. And if you tell him, in fact, vaccines are subject to greater scrutiny than drugs by the FDA, he'll tell you, don't believe the FDA. They've been captured by big pharma. So uh, you point to other scientific evidence. And he says, well, there's arcane disputes about those numbers. And then he goes on to something new like... uh, Wi-Fi radiation may also cause autism. You know, it's confusing to listen to, to these debates and people say, well, he's made a few good points. Big Pharma is, you know, not to be believed in every case. And maybe he's right about some of this other stuff too. After all, he's a Kennedy. Well, he's not right. Brandy Zadrodny, writing for NBC News, wrote a piece, that, a really terrific piece that I linked to in my piece where she really teased out the implications of his beliefs. If he was President Kennedy, which is a weird mental exercise because we all know we had a President Kennedy and we lost him, but he says he would stop administering childhood vaccines until they can be studied more, meaning that children would, would suffer and perhaps die unnecessarily while he tests vaccines that have been studied for some of them my whole life, you know, I, I mean, he would gut the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, you know, they're all they're all captured uh, by big pharma. And he would, you know, either restaff them or have newly staffed agencies where he would put in his people. And she asked who those were. And he said, well, I'm not going to get into that till I vet them. It sounds it sounds like a nightmare. You know, I mean, the COVID vaccine saved so many lives it, in this last tragedy that we all lived through. We know so many people who who survived and, and also didn't get really bad cases of it, didn't get long COVID. I think the thing that really pushed me over, I was thinking about doing it, but two things. He was on with Joe Rogan for three hours. Believe me, I didn't listen to it, the whole thing, but he repeated with Joe Rogan this idea that I had caved to big pharma. That was bad enough. But then 
Dr. Peter Hotez, who's a famous public health vaccine expert, took him to task and said that it was a parody of a, a conversation and he should be ashamed. And so then Joe Rogan starts trolling Dr. Hotez, come on my show and debate and debate Bobby Kennedy. And I'll give your favorite charity $100,000. And he's like, no, absolutely not. And then Elon Musk and a bunch of his tech bro morons are doing the same thing. And on Father's Day, he was coming home and he found two QAnon people on his doorstep demanding that he debate RFK Jr. They did not mean him harm, but I would not like to face that on my doorstep. So this poison of of conspiracy theorizing, which again, takes off from some truth that that there has been regulatory capture of many of our health agencies, as well as the agencies that regulate banks, the people who are supposed to be performing the public good and scrutinizing these situations, they become lobbyists or they were lobbyists already, you know, all that's true. But the answer isn't spouting a bunch of easily debunked lies and eroding people's trust even more. And along the way, perhaps persuading enough Democrats not to vote for Joe Biden to make Donald Trump president again. Yeah, he can't win the nomination. He can just cause a lot of mischief, but he won't necessarily commit to voting for Biden if Biden defeats him in a a primary. So he's playing that game, too. So it's very it's very dangerous. And people have to treat him like the charlatan he is with obvious family history, tragedies, illnesses. He hasn't had it easy, but he's he's doing damage. One last thing. I wanted to ask a little more about your remarkable piece at The Nation. It's been number one at the website for good reason. You could have just attacked Kennedy for his recent lies about the piece that you edited. Or you could have said, uh, you know, we all make mistakes. I've made some, but who hasn't? But instead, you wrote this was the worst mistake of your career. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Not very many people do. How did you decide to do it that way? I don't know. That made the that made the most sense for me because I could tell the story of how the forces that combined to get me to to do something like that. I really think that I should have been fired. In today's world, I might be fired for something that stupid. It, with social media, if the really smart activists and the smart scientists started coming after Salon, I mean, two thousand five, there was we had blogs, you know. So I I felt that very strongly. It's a real blight on my otherwise sterling career. (laughs) Um, And I felt like I had to come clean about the the forces of, you know, Jan Wenner was on my board, on Salon's board, and and so was David Talbot. I was just starting. They both really believed in this piece, and they thought it was quite a coup, you know, that we'd gotten Bobby to do it for both of us. And so, you know, it was something with some prestige that these powerful guys wanted me to do. Now, I would stand up to them multiple times later. But at that point, I think I was just, I just bought into the magic, the myth, the Rolling Stone fact checking, it'll all work out. And it didn't, didn't work out at all. Joan Walsh, you can read her report at thenation.com. It's called Just Another RFK Jr. Lie, I Know Because It's About Me. 
Joan, thank you for this terrific piece. And thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm